Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Hello, today we're going to be talking to Whitney Dunlop-Fowler, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her because she has quite an interesting background. She is the owner and independent brand strategist of A Touch of Wit. She's also the founder of Insights in Color. Whitney has nearly 10 years of experience with Fortune 500 companies from across the globe. She utilizes her vast knowledge of cultural analysis, semi-optics, and brand strategy to highlight new and meaningful ways for clients to leverage and constantly shift nature of culture. And she considers herself to be a historian and researcher. So let's start there. How did tell us about your path to you realizing you were a historian and researcher? Oh, I don't know that I ever, I don't know. That's a good question about realizing you're a historian and researcher, but it kind of came over time as I started looking into clients' projects and, um, you know, questions And I just kind of feel like you can't really have a good path forward to the future without understanding the past and understanding where your topic or category has come from. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I continue to have these revelations, I've continued to look into the past first on a lot of my projects. So that's kind of made me a bit of a historian. I think too, during my time, I went to um, NYU for grad school. And one of the courses I took was in the history department. And it's just really interesting. If you talk to history majors, their brains are like, they work automatically in timelines. Um, and they just know different periods in time and exactly what's happening there. I was completely out of my comfort zone, but it was a great class to take. And I think that might have unofficially started my journey into understanding how history has worked over time to kind of inform where we are today. Do you find that uh, history repeats itself or do you find that actually helps you give a foundation as to what could be unfolding uh, in the future? I think it does both. I think it definitely repeats itself, um, but not exactly. You know, with every revolution or revelation that comes back around, um, something's different in our culture, with our technology, the things that we're able to do. So while the idea of something might feel familiar how it's executed how it's thought about how it how it how it's expressed is different and we can learn from the past you know what made these things come to fruition in the first place in the past Mm -hmm. and then what is specifically different about today's cultural moment um that might bring it to light in a different way right so I do think the past is necessary to understand where you're going Mm -hmm. uh, and it helps you kind of contextualize why something might exist you know, kind of the same way it does today, but specifically what makes it different, more unique, and in some ways, a little bit more fresh and different. So tell me a little bit about your journey to the world of insights, and in particular, uh, the world of cultural strategy, because I think this is a very interesting area that you're in, especially now, with a lot of attention that being been given to that by a lot of brands. Yeah, um, I think for most researchers, our path is never linear <laughs> to this right. space, right? Um, I started as a qualitative coordinator on, on the field side and, you know, I was just doing a lot of costs. I had an administrative background, which I think is true for 
many, if I'm being honest, uh, researchers of color. Um, we kind of are in adjacent fields, advertising, administration, whatever that might be. And so my background lended itself to that. And it wasn't until I graduated from NYU that I had to start asking myself, like, what do I like to do? What could that look like? You know, and does, do I have a space here? And once I kind of settled on trying it out, and if I'm being honest, um, added, Cancer Added Value gave me a chance to try it out and kind mm -hmm. of get my, my hands dirty, if you will. I found that it was immediately a home for me. Um, I started as a brand strategist, quite junior. Um, that was an anomaly because Cancer Added Value did not have hire junior brand strategist. I think it's really weird to be a junior brand strategist because it's like, what do you know enough about strategy to bring it to the table? Um, but I was, I kind of shadowed a lot of the higher executive um, members of our team and they taught me a lot. I also had a dual role where my second role was a, was a semiotician uh, and we kind of moved forward with cultural strategy there. And for cultural strategy, it's kind of the same premise as brand strategy, except you move forward with a cultural lens, you bring in the cultural conversation to everything that you do, and you use that to inform where your client's um, strategy is going to go. Um, once I kind of got the hang of those two dual roles, um, before leaving Cantor Added Value, I was also, um, I kind of put my hand up for the multicultural vacancy that it just mm -hmm. occurred. A mentor of mine had left the business and I kind of kept asking, well, who's going to do the multicultural work? And no one said anything. So I kind of said, well, I, I think I could do it. I was also quite junior compared to that person. He was a VP, but no one else was there to do it. So um, it was given to me. So I had three hats there uh, and I wore them, you know, for a, a little bit of time until I got exhausted. Three hats are very hard to wear. <laughs> um, and then eventually I moved to um, Kelton Global and I focused more on my love of semiotics and cultural strategy there for two and a half years until I founded my own company, Touch of Wit Creative, in 2019. I like the name, very creative. <laughs> That's great. <Yeah. laughs> so, you know, a lot of people talk about insights, and I'm wondering, how do you define insights? How do you tell people what are actually insights? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I feel like when you're a junior, people talk about this concept, and it feels like you can't really trace it. You can't put your finger on it. Like, they kind of say, like, what's the aha? What's the so what out of this? Um, but that question is the same question I ask for everything in, in order to understand what an insight is. I think for a lot of companies, especially um, not companies, but when you're in the junior level, you kind of just report what you see. And that's what you think that that, that insight is like people like the color red, people like the color green. And that's what you report from, you know, the surveys that you do or the focus groups that you make, because I think honestly, school kind of teaches us to do it in that way. Mm -hmm. But the insight is going in a bit deeper and putting an analysis of it and saying, what types of people like the color red? Why do they like the color red? What about their background might be, you know, contributing to this? And why specifically does it lead to that decision? And the insight essentially is a little bit more of the why behind a respondent's answer or choice mm -hmm. or way of living or whatever that might be. And um, sometimes, you know, depending on the agency or the person, sometimes those insights fall short. So even I'm guilty of saying, well, these you know, respondents pick blue or whatever that is. And I have to sit back and reread it and say, well, why is this important to the story? <laughs> you know, why is this significant? What, how does this help my client? Um, and so that helps me dig a little bit deeper. And when you're doing cultural strategy, uh, the insights or the pursuit of insights, 
a little bit different? Is the depth any different or, or, or would it be the same as other insights? I'm just curious, is there a difference when you're actually dealing with cultural strategy? It is a lot deeper. Um, Can you give me an example? Yeah. So in, in addition to the why that you might ask, I'm also asking, well, what's happening in the world <laughs> mm-hmm. that is ultimately impacting this respondent or this group of respondents choices. So I have to look at the individual, but I also have to look at the world around them. This is where the history component comes into play as well that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. So I have to know the past, but I also have to know what's happening today. Right. And I also have to know what's happening in smaller, more marginalized sectors of, of the of culture, things that aren't maybe on the mainstream lens just yet. Um, so that I can say, oh, these responders are kind of doing these other things. I've seen this happen. Um you know, in small sparks here and there, but it hasn't become mainstream yet. And this could be where they're pulling from. So I basically, it makes my um, data set of why a bit wider, Uh almost global and universal so that I can, I use it more to substantiate the reasons as to why they're doing things. And it's usually to illustrate the things that they can't articulate, right? Um, my great, my favorite example is always going to be Devil Wears Prada. I don't know if you've seen that before, but there's a scene where the woman laughs because they're making a big fuss about a green belt, that there are a, a turquoise belt that they're trying to choose for a fashion moment. And basically Miranda tells her that all of her choices have already been decided for her, whether she knows it or not. And she goes down this line of different fall lines or different spring lines that have happened in different collections to basically make her choose whatever she was wearing, which is now at the bottom, you know, of this, of a sales bin in somebody's uh, discount store. And that's kind of what cultural insights is and the history that I look into. It's like, what are those invisible forces that are ultimately telling consumers what to do, how to live, how to exist and impacting their decision-making habits? To kind of probe for another example, uh, obviously George Floyd's event was a very uh, key turning point in many ways. Uh, it was a very tragic moment. Did, did the cultural strategies change? Do you think much post that uh, whole, you know, event that the world had to see and, and, and experience? And if so, how has it changed? That's a trickier topic, and that's mostly because race is involved. Um, and that's a topic that is, has 400 years of a one-sided type of history behind it. And that's a harder area to shift or change. So I think that there's well-meaning behind companies wishing to create strategies against that, but it requires a lot of energy to kind of hold those strategies up. So I can't say that anything's changed because of that. I can say that, um, energy around the idea has been, um, you know, a little bit more intense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's heightened, but it doesn't mean that change has necessarily happened. Yeah. I know what you're saying. I think change takes a long time and a lot more than just heightened energy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But if you were to take something like the wellness movement, um, that's definitely something that has shifted the way we do everything. Um, and it started, I think it started way, way, way back when um, holistic wellness started coming on our radars, mm-hmm. when there was a desire for millennials to kind of separate themselves from the angst and anxiety that the 2008 recession had caused. And so there was this move for mindfulness, right? Like that's when um, 
uh, events and experiences became prioritized because we couldn't access those material things that were monikers of success or happiness or whatever you want to call that. So we made it intangible and that kind of moved us to this era of mindfulness and being present and have, wanting to be at peace within our own spirit, within ourselves. And it has exploded to this large wellness landscape that it seem, is seemingly limitless. It's not just about our physical bodies, it's about our emotional well-being. Mental health is a very key um, trend today and now, so it's probably going to continue to evolve over time. You think COVID has added fuel to that fire? Oh, God, COVID has changed everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think once we find something, we want to kind of work the heck out of it and, and, you know, for lack of a better word, exploit all avenues of it. Um, it's so funny. I was talking to a friend and I said, do you think that the, the, the tests that you take for food sensitivities work? And she goes pretty much, she told me she thinks it's a bunch of malarkey, but I was definitely going to try it because I wanted to see what my body was sensitive to, you know, that this technology right. make these tests. And then I was watching on the television the other day, the Today Show came on and they basically said the same thing. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think we're all more aware of our health, our mental health, uh, our environments, the people within our spaces, our workplace environments, definitely, as you see this great resignation happening, does that feed us? Does it make us feel better? Is it detrimental to our overall happiness and things like that? So, yeah. And I think, you know, technology is allowing us to have much easier access to it, right? You can get your DNA analysis. You can find out, you know, what foods work with your particular genes and versus not. So I think we have much more easier access to that. So I think a combination is, uh, you know, of interest as well as technology enabling that is just kind of fueling itself. It's like a circular kind of, uh, I think, uh, motion that's moving forward in that area. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me some experience of, that you've had with clients where you've really had an aha moment that really changed uh, an insight that changed the trajectory of a product or service. Um and, you know, I'm trying to get our listeners to uh, pursue insights on their own. And if they can maybe hear about how you pursued a, an insight and how it changed a particular project or a product, it might be interesting for them to hear that. Huh. <laughs> I've had a lot of ahas uh, along the way, um, which I think over time, once you get so many, you forget the original ones. Uh-huh. Um, mm, I'm going to have to think about this. I, I mean, I can tell you some just good moments that I've had over time in, in my career. Um, and I think, you know, along with getting the inside aha, sometimes there's also like benefits in having that aha that, you know, you're a good researcher, you know, mm -hmm. um, I had a client, a luxury client that we were doing some work for, and we were just presenting things that, um, they didn't fully agree with or the team was and you know they were being hospitable and, and nice as most clients um <laughs> are and um we'd come to this deciding like this uh positioning statements and it didn't quite hit the mark for the client and i remember being in the meeting and we'd kind of painted this picture the story for them and told them well this is who your consumers are this is who you are as a business and as a brand um, and this is how you need to move forward. And, you know, they kind of were workshopping the terms and the words and it just didn't work for them. And for some reason or somehow some message came to me and I kind of blurted out what the answer was. And they, everyone just kind of stopped and said, that's exactly it. And so, 
for me, that was, if I'm being honest, one of the best moments in my research career because, you know, I think with the work that we do, we don't always know that it works. You know, we hand over our insights, we hand over our research, the team loves it, and you don't always know what the clients do with it, you know? So it's also, it's always very lovely to get that in the moment round of applause, if you will, from clients who you've been on a long journey with Mm -hmm. um, along the way. Um, The other thing as far as ahas are concerned, or at least that I've learned as it comes, as it pertains to specifically multicultural insights. This is, this is a, it's a two pronged kind of equation. As I was coming up, um, it was very common for us to look at multicultural insights and say, well, what's specifically black about it? Uh, Or what's specifically Hispanic about it? Why is it different or why is it nuanced? And that was the way for us to capture insights. It was always with this lens of how is it uniquely different or special from mainstream? And that was how we had our ahas. However, (laughs) I've been in the space for 11 years. I'm working with clients for them to change that perspective because it's not, if we continue to have this paradigm of what's different from mainstream, then people of color continue to be marginalized and seen as not a part of the mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. So the question isn't, how is it different? How is, you know, how black or brown consumers shop for shoes different than uh, non-people of color and so, so that I know how to tailor my marketing? It's more like, how is this activity or this product or why is this activity or product uniquely significant to this type of consumer? How, how is it special or um, you know, impactful to them in ways that may not be as impactful to other groups? Um, and it's a slight nuance, but once you start asking the why is it significant, then you also turn on that historical lens <laughs> that I always do. And that's the tracing of the, okay, well, maybe we should like look into this and see how it's impacted these uh, this uh, group of consumers over time, the role that it's played in that space and why it shows up the way that it shows up for them. So that's kind of a bit of a, of a aha nuance. I think that's very interesting. Can you give me an example of that to really fully understand that the, with a particular product or anything? I mean, you don't have to name the product. Yeah, but so... Last year, I had to do a a kind of fashion deep dive Mm -hmm. and understanding the drivers for how um, Black consumers show up in the world from hair, makeup, um, home decor, fashion, and everything like that. And every time I would get to an insight, you know, there's always someone in the room who's not a person of color who goes, well, how is this different from how I do it or how I get dressed or how I go shopping because that to them is the key to how to market to black and brown consumers differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of came at them and said, well, to understand how, um, why fashion shows up differently and why someone's appearance is so much more significant to black and brown consumers, you have to understand the history of how they, uh, you know, maneuver themselves around these categories and why. And so I had to do a really 
big, deep cultural deep dive into fashion, the history of fashion, the history of um, cosmetics and makeup, um, the history of hair products and the history of home decor in black and brown communities. And what we found was that they've historically been wiped out of those categories or were never considered for those categories in the past, right? Um, beauty, um, notions of beauty, notions of even having money to afford these things. It was a presumption that they couldn't access those, those um, particular products or particular um, uh, you know, levels of income. And so manufacturers didn't make products for them or they didn't have those products in store. You know, there was, I remember I read this thing that said uh, there was, it was presumed that black women didn't wear makeup because we didn't come into the department stores to buy it, but the makeup was always white foundation, right? <laughs> or we were in, they were in hostile places and hostile neighborhoods. So why would we go in there and buy it? Doesn't mean we weren't wearing it. It meant that we were more often making it for ourselves, right? We have a long history of um, creating our own products for ourselves because we are often not a part of the mainstream conversation. So understanding something like that and why putting on a hat, putting on lipstick, um, decorating our homes in a particular way, you know, it, it means something significantly more than it might mean from someone who doesn't come from that history. And that's the key to that aha. It's not about how is it different or why we wear bright colors, you know, that that's a small nuance. It's not the bigger picture. Interesting. So I'm just curious, do women still make a lot of their makeup in the black, black community? Black women, yeah. Because oh, oh, you, you, you can't get uh, good makeup still, or, or it's just it's just something that uh, you've gotten used to? Or I'm, I'm just curious. I, I would assume there's makeup available now or, or not, not enough. So there are Black women founders uh-huh. um, who created their own cosmetic and makeup lines. And they are increasingly in, in hair lines, and they are increasingly being purchased by Black and brown women and also being um, put in on retail stores by brands like Sephora and Target and Ulta. So we continue to make our own products, but um, it's not in a niche way. We are being put in larger mass retail stores. Wow, interesting. I never knew that. So, you know, I talked to you previously and I get the feeling a lot of your path has also been your intuition and following your intuition. And I'm curious how much would you say is the correlation between intuition and insights and your passion for insights? Oh my goodness. I mean, honestly, (laughs) a lot of my job is proving the stuff that I already know. Um, (laughs) um, And I don't, and I don't mean that a hundred percent. So like I take every research request as something new. Um, There are going to be things that I think I know about a category or topic that I have to do the due diligence of making sure that that's the case. And I'm happy to change my hypothesis as, as needed. Um, and I say that because I find that sometimes in this space, uh, research and insights goes stale because someone is just like, I already know this topic. I already know how it looks and what it's going to look like. These are the answers. I never come into a project like that, but I might come in saying, well, I'm pretty sure these types of consumers do this and these types of consumers do that. Let's test this theory to see if that's the case. Um, but what I never... I think I use my intuition to ask the right questions Mm -hmm. and to lead us to a new moment of of insight. Um, But I never presume to know the outcome of anything. 
And I, I, if I'm being honest, clients usually want me to know the outcome. So <laughs> a lot of times with semiotic work, for example, I'm presenting my clients with a, pl- a plethora of options, a, a lot of options. Semiotics is meant to create um, inspiration and show you the breadth and depth of an idea or topic and how far it can go, how many ways it can be expressed, how many ways it can be activated against. And it's up to the client to decide, well, if some, you know, what, which of those feel like an easy to do, which of those feel like it's out of step with their organization, which of those feels like um, it's a great aspiration to hold on to for maybe a long term, a longer term plan. But I also find that many clients don't want to do that work. They want me to give them the answers. And I always say to them, listen, I don't know your inner workings well enough to say you should 100% do this because I'm always going to go for what I think makes the most sense. Um, But many organizations are built in a way that change doesn't happen overnight, literally happens over in 18 months. So there are many things that I'll propose to a client. I'll say, why can't you just do this? And they're like, well, we have to, you know, think about this with the department, think about that, think about that. So I don't come to my clients with the answers. Um, There are answers that I usually would lean towards, but I really prefer that my clients workshop it and find their own power in that process and find their own capabilities. Um, As a semiotic, um, as a semiotician, my brain is always in the future, right? I'm always thinking, I'm always seeing things that have already been done in different categories. And for my clients, oftentimes it feels new, it feels fresh and it feels risky. So I always have to kind of pull back my own perceptions and say, well, it's already being done over here and this smaller niche brand is already doing it. So why can't you do it? I have to kind of remove myself from that. But yeah, my insights lead a lot of it. Um, My insights lead a lot of how I propose methodology. I have a really good sixth sense of hearing a client, um, even without seeing an RFP and knowing exactly what methodologies they need to get to the right answer. You know, that makes sense because a lot of times, you know, people really learn by experience, right? And in many of these situations, you're bringing a lot of experience you've had personally, uh, history and knowledge. But how do you replicate that with your clients in a very uh, quick manner so that they can come to the similar conclusions that you already kind of know in your gut? You know, this is what's going to happen because you have a certain level of experience and knowledge already. And that must be, uh, I'm sure, quite a challenge to be able to do that. And that's what you're talking about. And have you found a way to expedite that? Uh, No. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I know how to do it. You know that, well, you're a man, so I don't know, but there is a presumption for most women that, you know, the best way to get some men to kind of go along with your plan or your husband's is to make them think that they thought of the thought in the first place. Sure. Um, I kind of know how to do that with my clients. You know, there will be things that I want them to lean towards that I won't outrightly say, you know, I'll just paint the picture. <laughs> I'll just say, I'll just, I'll paint the picture and it just, it's clear, you know, it's clear what the answer should be, but I can't force it on them, you know, because that's right. the quickest way for them to not own it. And then for them to not believe that they can do it themselves. So um, I paint the picture and I wait for my clients to pick up on it. And then I, I let them decide whether or not they feel they're capable of doing it. And sometimes my clients surprise me. Sometimes they're like, yeah, this is it. This is 100% what we need to do. I don't even, I, sometimes I don't even have to paint the whole picture. You know what I mean? And they'll pick up on it and they'll they'll add things to that equation that I didn't even think that they were ready to do. So that's always very lovely to encounter. But more often than not, I have to know 
how to paint the insight picture and story in a way that empowers them to make the right decisions. You can't come, it's, and it's not like marketing. It's not like- right. You can't just say, do this and do that, right? Yeah, they, that's not what they're coming to us for. Right. They need proof. So I have to paint the proof so that they feel emboldened to make the choices that they need to make. I know what you're saying. You, you have to paint the picture and then give them the matrix memo, right? Good, which is like the blue pill of the red pill. <laughs> I mean, kind of the Socratic method and have them make the choice, but you kind of pr- pretty much clearly uh, show them the picture and the choices that they're facing. So, exactly. yeah, well, that makes sense. But I also find that a lot of people, I think that work in insights also have a good sense of intuition and they are constantly working on that sixth sense of theirs and their intuition and, and, and honing that skill. Are there certain things you're doing uh, to kind of, you know, to test your intuition and to, and to keep fine tuning it? Do you find yourself doing that? Um, yeah, I think it goes back to that. I never want to assume I'm always right thing. And I've kind of been on this journey where I delivered insights and strategy kind of in a bubble, like by myself, mm-hmm. um, which one gives me confidence, but also is quite frightening sometimes. You know what I mean? And I never want to give a client strategy that I don't know fully works. And so I think that's something that adds on to my my time frame, right? I can assume things, but I have to just make sure and go check. And the way that the world moves anyways, I have to look into these things because culture trends, cultural shifts are happening so much faster now, right? Um, a lot of times when I look into projects, I am looking at larger cultural shifts and I've already, I know what the shifts are. My job is to see how they've evolved from project to project that I'm commissioned on, right? Um, wellness is a good example. I think for, you know, when I first started creating cultural shifts, mindfulness was it. Uh, that's where that's where it started that's where it ended mm-hmm. but then I had to as with each project went on I was like oh okay it's more than mindfulness maybe it's you know mental health okay more than mental health okay it's you know knowing who your friends are and making friends you know it's loneliness or whatever that might be so I think intuition is a great foundational starting place mm-hmm. but I'm always looking to find ways in which I'm wrong or my vision is limited or my scope is not wide enough and I need I look for the world to tell me how it's changed so I can tell my clients what to look out for as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a real key. So you have to kind of challenge yourself because that's how you see new things, right? Um, because otherwise you get used to saying it's going to be the same of same It's not always the same of same You have to kind of question yourself. And I think uh, that's a sign of actually someone else who has empathy as well to be able to question yourself and say, hey, maybe it's not the way I'm thinking, but let me put myself in somebody else's shoes or look from a different perspective because that's when you start seeing different things um, based on different times, uh, time periods and so on. So. Exactly. And that's really helpful. So how do you keep up with all these changes and things? I mean, are there certain sources you think are ideal or, or have you kind of found a way to kind of keep up on this? Because this is obviously something you need to keep up on a regular basis. I just have a really big brain. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure that's part of it, but the other part of it, I think you you get close to a lot of things too. So uh, I'm I'm just curious as to, uh, are there certain sources you think are, uh, you know, or, or I mean, I'm sure you read a lot as well as watch a lot, but I think uh, I'm sure you found a certain pattern that, that works for you as well over time. Yeah. So one thing that helps me, which makes me frightened for younger generations is I watch a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I get 
you know, I don't skip commercials. <laughs> I love watching ads. I, I write down ads that I feel that are really interesting or doing innovative storytelling. And I use those as kind of like, it's like a bit of a Rolodex in my brain. So I can say, oh, this is doing things in interesting ways. I think it's really important to do that because clients don't like to do stuff without seeing other examples of it, unfortunately. So having a Rolodex of the ads that I watch or things that are really interesting helps um, a lot. I think the other thing that's really additive is I work not to get siloed into any of my hats too often. So like at the end of last year, I started rejecting a lot of multicultural work and still am because I've been in that space. I was in that space a little bit too long. Uh, I'm a better practitioner when I'm able to touch many things and multiple groups of people and not just one type or two types, whatever that might be. And so when I'm able to spread my wings a little bit, um, into different categories. It makes me a better practitioner because I'm able to learn what's happening over here, what's happening over there. And it forces me to kind of deep dive into a category I might not have thought of getting, you know, my hands into. And that's number two. And then number three is when I'm on projects, uh, I subscribe to a lot of different sources. Um, it's so funny. I was just, um, at the end of last year, I was canceling on my subscriptions because mm -hmm. I, I had um, less projects on, but I subscribe to every just about every um, major news uh, organization and um, academic places as much as possible as well. I really need college for that access, if I'm being honest, but where I can get that academic um, access, I read a lot of you know academic journals. I have hired historians in the past as well, um, but that's really also tricky because you have to be really specific on what you're looking for, mm -hmm. what, what you need. And so a lot of times those historians just give me a ton of work that would have taken me more, more time to research and collate than anything, but then I have to go through that work learn everything about those things and, and synthesize it in a way that feels additive to my clients. So there's a bit of an always on radar for me. Right. In casualness. Uh, I remember I was visiting my brother in uh, Tennessee and this ad came on um, in, in a bar and I was just, I was shocked at it because it was actually, I think it was like a, I don't know if I can say this, but like it was a sexual enhancement ad, uh -huh. but it had all black characters in it. We're in the middle of like Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. Like, <laughs> it all black, all black actors in it. And I was like, who did this? This is really innovative, you know? And I'm like writing it down on my phone because I'd never seen that before. Um, even watching television and seeing how storytelling is happening there, the different types of stories being told. The CW has a new show about a black, um, young lady who is a superhero and she's like a skateboarding nerd, like intelligent, everything like that. So understanding how different portrayals are coming to life. So I'm always scanning, I'm always on, I'm always kind of putting things in the back of my brain for projects as they come along. You know, it's funny you say that. I find myself when I'm watching television, I watch ads from a different lens like you do. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, how did that, how do they come to this ad? How yeah. did this come to this copy? And it kind of, you know, playing a little bit of Sherlock Holmes kind of saying what insight actually drove this, the, for them to use this particular scene or, you know, language or whatever. And it's a, it's a different perspective. And it's interesting because when you're in this industry and you, and you do that, you, you, you do learn a lot about culture and what's going on. Even if you haven't actually worked on the project, you can kind of deduce it from a lot of the advertising and messaging as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think behind that is a, is a really a heightened sense of curiosity and also willingness to go beyond your comfort zone or beyond the envelope of what's comfortable for, you know, I mean, I think that's part of striving and thriving, not just surviving. Right. 
um, and, and kind of pushing the envelope so that you're learning different things and exploring new things. And, and eventually you do, I think as a result, you do have those aha moments because you're curious and you're stretching yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, where do you see the future of uh, insights uh, down the line or even cultural um, strategy going? Do you see it kind of uh, uh, something evolving down the line here? I mean, everything evolves, right? I, I think, um, you know, what's happening with television shows is really interesting to me. I was watching This Is Us last night mm-hmm. and even Abbott, Abbott Elementary um, and the depth that or even um even euphoria oh my goodness the depth and the way storytelling is going it's really interesting and i think you know brands are gonna continue or or probably continue to take a little bit more of their cues from how stories are being told on television and in media um and you know it's harder with ads because sometimes they're only a minute long or 30 seconds and like you know how can i strike this type of, you know, connection with my audience in ways that are significant. Um, but there are ways, there are different ways to activate, different ways to touch different points, you know. But I, I think what's happening in television and all of these uh, content platforms is really interesting. And that's going to be a place to watch for how insights evolve. Um, not only how they evolve, but how then the story is told in more interesting ways and how they're executed. Um, so that's kind of where I always look towards because i just think there's some innovative things happening there when you say television you're talking about network television you're talking about streaming or any particular all of it all of it Gloria is on hbo this is us is on nbc the cw show that's you know regular cable it's it's being done very well in different ways abbott elementary as well insecure you know it's it's tapping into these very real life stories Uh in ways that are um significant to the groups that you're trying to connect with and that's the key you know sometimes i think especially when talking to targeted groups that are not typical historically typical mainstream Mm -hmm. there's a desire to codify them as other or different or significantly you know different from me but the truth is we just look for versions of ourselves in media and we're we tend to be quite normal and regular, right? Except we might have a different cuisine for dinner, but other than that, we're still walking our dogs and going to (laughs) school and, you know, going to work and we still love, you know, uh, chatting on the computer, on the phone, whatever that might be. So showing examples of how we're just like everyone else with with our slight cultural nuances is going to be the key to getting a lot of our insights right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So in the, who in the world of uh, consumer insights, research, marketing, would you love to have lunch with and why? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I would want to just talk to storytellers. I just find the creative side of um, the work that we inform really interesting uh, because we are in the back always on the back burner. We don't always get to ideate the go-to-market strategy, like the how things actually come to, to be, if you will. Uh-huh. So I would love to talk to creative departments or even I would love to be in a writer's room. You know what they do the table reads for uh-huh. like scripts? Right. And, and just seeing how that comes together and seeing what the ideas are, what gets thrown on, 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 on the wall. And I think that that could just inform so much of how I think of brands and insights and messaging and things like that. So for me, I'm always inspired by anything that's in adjacent categories. This is also how I push my clients as well. 
um, had a project one time and they were like, oh, we want to look into the world of trucks. And I was like, there is nothing new happening there. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) So we looked into the world of trucks, but we also looked into adjacent categories in order to say, you know, in the, while you might see this as a separate category, a lot of times in consumers' minds, they kind of sit in the same space, these other options, if you will. So let's see what's what's also taking share of brain, if you will. So I think of myself in the same way. I like being inspired by other sources, other forces outside of insights and research, the things that also touch us. Right. Yeah, that's part of our daily lives. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate... uh, you sharing uh, your background, your knowledge, and your experience with us. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great. I love having conversations like this. <laughs> Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.